You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage this morning is John chapter 8, starting in verse 38 through 50. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies." But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. We love you, moms. We're thankful for you. You are the secret weapon in the kingdom of God. We love you, moms. You're amazing. And so this is a great segue to my sermon. Uh, if you've ever been to therapy, uh, the starting point of that conversation, I've never been to therapy, but I'm sure that is shortly coming, uh, you know that that conversation, the starting point, is always your family of origin. In that, in that first session, that's the first thing you start unpacking, specifically usually your relationship with your father. What is growing in recognition is that your parentage, your dad, is the most formative relationship that you'll ever have in your life. So this is deeply biological when parents hold their baby. Oxytocin is released, which is this bonding agent that creates a literal neurological bond between mother and baby, dad and baby. I even heard recently of an orphanage in the Ukraine that had missions teams come to their orphanage just simply to hold infants so that that psychological safety could be infused into those babies. A few statistics about how important parents are, specifically fathers are. Children without fathers are four times more likely to live in poverty. Only one in five inmates grew up with a father, so four out of five inmates grew up without a father. And without a father... Children are twice as likely to be involved in early sexual activity. Point is, family of origin matters. Parents matter. Dads matter. One pastor I read reflects on his upbringing in a first-generation home of Italian immigrants. He says his dad worked all day, his mother was lonely and sad and overwhelmed, and he writes that him and his three siblings emerged out of that environment scarred. They were emotionally underdeveloped, starved for affection and attention. They each left home for college, trying unsuccessfully not to look back. The point is, we are shaped by our parents parents intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, Therefore, 
what's going to happen is we will soon take on their traits and reflect them because they shape us. Now, nothing reflects this truth more in my life than how I load the dishwasher. When I load the dishwasher, it is efficient and perfect. I mean, it, I maximize all space. I get the most amount of dishes in there, so we have a nice, efficient cycle. We don't want to waste water. You know, we are getting it done. I am, you know, I own the dishwasher. Now, where do you, no bowls will go on the bottom. Bowls go on the top, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so I have a code I live by when it comes to the dishwasher. I get that. I, get, I see some fans in the back. Thank you for that affirmation. Now, where do you think I learned that? I learned that from my dad. My dad is the master of the dishwasher. He loads it efficiently. He loads it with great detail. So I've seen that modeled my whole entire life. He doesn't even let my mom touch the dishwasher. It's like his domain. I've seen that modeled, and that's the way that, that's the reason why it's been infused into me. It's, it's been trained into me, but also as a byproduct, greater characteristics my dad has passed on to me, efficiency, a detail-oriented life, being very planned. And it has a good side to it, but also has a dark side to it because it makes me very stoic at times. It makes me bad at spontaneity. It makes me obsessive-compulsive sometimes, controlling and addicted to work because I like progress. I like productivity. We are our parents. You don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit it, but it's true. We take on their traits and we take on their character all in time. So who your parent is is crucial to who you become. What's true of our earthly parentage is even more true of our spiritual parentage. As we continue now into this conversation that Jesus is having between himself and the Jewish community, we're going to see that Jesus identifies who your spiritual father is, is a great factor in your spiritual formation, who you are becoming. You know, spiritual formation is the process of, of who we're becoming that's going to eventually be who we are for all of eternity. We're becoming more like the person we're going to be forever. And Jesus says, who you decide your spiritual parentage, your spiritual father is going to be, is going to be a great determining factor in who you become. So he's already said, Jesus is the light of the world. Light penetrates darkness. And so he's penetrating this community, exposing the lies that they believe with the truth of God, the truth that will set them free. But also Jesus is going to connect now the belief of lies or the belief of truth to their origin, the devil or to God, the Father. Spiritually, one of these is our Father, the devil, or God. And just like our earthly parentage, we will take on the traits and characteristics of our spiritual Father. And we'll grow up to be just like them. So here's our points for today. Who are the devil's children? Who is the devil? And who are God's children and what are they like and what do they do? So it's real simple, straightforward points. Who are the devil's children? Who is the devil? Who are God's children? What do they do and what are they like? So before we go ahead and jump into that, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord to be with us and teach us. Our great Father, the Father of truth and the Father of life, we come before you needing your truth and needing your life. We ask you, Lord, to meet us now in our depression and in our sadness, we ask, us to, uh, we ask you, Lord, to meet us in our temptations. We ask you, Lord, to meet us in our struggles and our exhaustion and fatigue. We ask you, Lord, to meet us where we're at. We need your grace. Would you, by your grace, let your Holy Spirit now move us to you and draw us to you, Lord. We, we ask that you help us open up our hearts to receive, Lord, what you would have for us today to convict us and to lead us and to transform us, Lord. We want to leave here today 
more liberated from lies, walking more in the light, set free by the truth, and resisting the father of lies. Lord, would you please do this in us, we pray in your name, amen. So who are the devil's children? To review, all right, Jesus has been challenged by this Jewish community. He's located the reasons why they continue to resist him. In verse 37, he says, my words find no place in you. So that means something else is more central to their being, to their life than Jesus' words. They have something occupying the very center of their being that is commanding everything that they do. They have chosen to live by lies. They have adopted lies, brought them into their life, and constructed their life from there. Now, the question Jesus is going to get at is where do these lies come from? Start with me in verse 38. Jesus speaks with them in dialogue and says, I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you've heard from your father. They live by what they have heard from their father. So the question obviously is then, who is their father? He continues in verse 39. Or sorry, they respond in verse 39. Abraham is our father. I mean, we're, we're the people of the promise. We're the people of the covenant. We, you know, we're the Jewish people. We're Abraham's offspring. And Jesus replies to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of, that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So Jesus' response is, nope, you are not Abraham's kids. That's not right. Try again. Here's a clue. Look at the works that you are doing. Look at how you're responding to me. And so they respond in verse 41. We were bo- uh, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So the next answer they give is that God is their father. Now Israel in the Old Testament, is called God's firstborn son. So here they're stepping into that mantle. God is our father. And as they do this, as they do that, they throw this jab at Jesus. Did you see that? Where they slyly reference his illegitimate origins, his questionable origins. And the language there actually in the Greek is, um, it's PG-13. I mean, it's not so PG, it's PG-13. So these, this, this response is volatile. This response is, um, it's offensive. It would be offensive. Verse 42 and 43, Jesus replies to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Jesus is saying, you are not of Abraham, you are not of God, because that status, being Abraham's offspring, being a part of God's family, his children, the true Israel, that's not a status of ethnicity. That's not a status of heritage. That's a spiritual status. That's what Abraham did. He believed God, trusted in God, placed his faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Before Abraham was ever a Jew, he was a believer, right? And so God, uh, Jesus is saying it's a spiritual status, So their inability, their inability to listen to Jesus' message and comprehend his message, 
Jesus summarizes that in this phrase. You cannot bear to hear my words. It shows that they have no love for God in their hearts. They have no interest really for what he has for them. Therefore, God cannot be their father. Someone else is. Someone else has shaped who they are. They have taken on the traits and characteristics of another kind of father, not the one true heavenly father. Verse 44, Jesus lets it now out of the bag. Who is their father? You are of your father, the devil. The devil is their father. Remember, we take on the traits and characteristics of our parents. You know if you are under the guise of the devil and overcome by his lies, if you operate like he does. You are of your father, the devil. You look like him, talk like him, seem like him, think like him. So let's go ahead and just um, take an inventory of what we've seen so far in this conversation. The devil is a slanderer and an accuser. The word devil in Greek literally means it's from the verb to accuse or to slander. And it's interesting, okay, notice this here. This is all intentional. Back in verse 41, they accuse Jesus of being the product of sexual sin. They accuse him and slander him there. Down in verse 48, read there with me, it's, they, they reply to Jesus a moment here later saying, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So again, they slander him. They accuse him. Venom is just spewing out of their mouth. Now listen, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, doesn't it? You know who you are when the pressure's applied and words come out. They're like their father, the devil. They've taken on his traits and they've taken on his characteristics. But even more than that, Jesus mentioned in this passage, the devil is a murderer, didn't he? And it's interesting what happens in verse 37. They tried to kill him. Jesus says, you're going to kill me. And down in verse 59, we're not going to read it, but down in verse 59, they literally move to kill Jesus here shortly after. They are acting just like their father, who is a murderer. They have believed the father of lies. They've become like the father of lies. So Jesus continues on, verses 44 and 45, and says this, Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because, but because I tell the truth... You do not believe me. They've taken in the lies. Another way to say that, if that doesn't make sense, is the vision of the good life. If I were to, if, and we've sa- said this last few weeks. What's your vision of the good life? If I were to ask you that, what would your re- response be? Everyone has a vision of the good life. Their vision of the good life is national glory, national superiority, moral superiority, the glory of the, of the former days, they think that the Messiah is going to bring that about. They're ready to take Rome, lift Rome's oppression, and return to the glory days of Israel. But that is a lie that the father of lies has planted into their imagination that appeals to the lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes and the pride of life. And they've taken with it and they've run with it. So literally now, the, the, the walls of their souls cannot literally fit truth into it. Their souls are so occupied with their vision of the good life, which really is lies from the father of lies, that truth just cannot integrate, settle down into their being. They literally can't take it in. 
It doesn't match. It doesn't harmonize with them in the center of their being. And so what happens when we live by lies? We live in illusion, right? We live in a fantasy of the lies making that we go along with and believe. And so what happens when you have that illusion threatened? That vision of the good life that you would let you live for, like that you built your life on. What happens when someone begins to poke at that and threaten its security? We lash out, right? We overreact. We become enraged, violent, <laughs> angry, bitter, resentful, hostile, murderous even like these. This community is going to be towards Jesus. The point is, They've adopted lies from the father of lies and become just like him unconsciously. So Jesus says, because of all this, you cannot bear to hear my word. In verse 37, he says, my words find no place in you. The walls of their souls just cannot take in the truth. Now, it's important to know that what Jesus is teaching here, that there's a, there's a family a family of lies. It's underneath the dominion of the devil. This idea is not original to Jesus. This is actually original to the first few pages of your Bible back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, you're not going to go there. I'm just going to explain it to you very quickly. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God looks at Satan, the serpent, and, to, and gives him a prophecy. It says there's going to be two offspring two seeds, two lines of humanity, if you will, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and they're going to be at enmity with one another from here on out, at war with one another from here on out. So he curses the serpent, and in the middle of that curse, he gives that prophecy. There's going to be two lines of humanity. And of course, one day we know that the seed of the woman, the singular individual seed of the woman, who is Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent, which, which God also prophesies there in Genesis 3.15. But what's interesting, it's purposeful, as Moses records the story of humanity, is that very shortly after, Cain and Abel appear, Adam and Eve's first children. And what Cain does, he's rejected by God. So what does he do? He lies to his brother to bring him out to the field. He murders his brother in cold blood and then is cursed by God, just like the serpent was cursed. And Cain doesn't reconcile with God. Cain, Cain leaves he built his own version of the Garden of Eden. And what happens through the genealogies that we see very, very shortly after in Cain's family lineage is that every generation becomes more immoral, more violent, more chaotic. So literally, those two divergent lines of humanity, the seed of the woman, God's family, and the seed of the serpent, the devil's family, materialize through Cain's line, and through Seth's line, the child that Adam and Eve will have in place of Abel, who was murdered by Cain. So this idea is not original to Jesus. This is the story of humanity. You are either of God or of the serpent. And you might not know it, but it's true. And what keeps you under the guise or of the dominion of the devil, and you might not even know it, what keeps you there is the lies that you believe. You might be sympathetic with the vision of the good life that the father of lies wants you to live for. So Jesus' analysis here of who are the devil's children, it should cause each and every one of us to do honest self-examination. 
in our own lives. If you're here and maybe you're seeking, you're not a Christian yet, you're considering it, and you wouldn't say that God is your father, you automatically have been claimed by the devil. He wants you. He's out to destroy your life. He wants to make you his own. And you likely don't know it, but he's feeding you lies, and they've made you angry. They've made you volatile. They've made you unable to receive the truth, just like this community who cannot receive Jesus' words. But the good news that I want you to hear today, if you're here and you're seeking, you're curious, is that God wants to be your father. Isn't that incredible? That God, creator almighty, is not so proud that he won't take in his enemies. He won't take in those who have been sympathetic and participating in the darkness and the kingdom of darkness. He wants you to come to the kingdom of light. That's why Jesus was sent. Jesus says, I am sent by the Father to come and teach you this truth and bring you this message. Jesus was sent to not only do that, but also to die in our place so that we could be reconciled with our Father and have relationship with Him, real, authentic relationship with Him from here on out and for all of eternity. So I'm telling you today, the devil, he wants to claim you. And if you're here and you're not a believer, he has his claim on you, but the Father of heavenly lights, the only good Father, loves you. He wants you. He sent his Son to die for you. So you no longer have to live by lies. You can live in the truth and truly live. But for all of us, okay, every single one of us in here, we need to ask ourselves the question, am I believing lies? What's your vision of the good life? If you were to, if you were to, to list that out and then match it with the pages of the New Testament or the life, the vision for life that Jesus seems to describe and live out in the Gospels, like does my life look much like the life of Jesus or the life of the early church that was discipled by him? Does our life match the life that we see in the pages of the New Testament? And if not, if there's these massive inconsistencies, then the problem fundamentally is that we have blindly received lies into our being and we live by them. So that's who the, God, who the devil's children are. But now I want to ask the question, who is the devil? There's a lot of confusion around this. But I think the more that we understand our enemy, the better we can resist him, right? The better we can resist him, the more we understand him and his schemes. So that's what I want to explore now. Who is the devil? So before I answer that question from this passage and the rest of the Bible... I first want to say that, yes, like we actually do believe that the devil exists and that he is a real nefarious being who is alive and active. And maybe you're here and you're, again, seeking, and that sounds archaic, that sounds like mythology, that sounds like non-scientific. Or maybe you're here and you're Christian, it just, it just isn't a part of your framework for life or an understanding of reality at all. Here's what I'll say to you. If you fail to recognize the reality of the demonic, you will make the mistake of demonizing people. If you fail to recognize the reality of Satan, you will Satanize people. So if you observe society right now, which doesn't believe in demons and doesn't believe in the devil, you'll see that everybody is at each other's throats, aren't they? We resent one another, hate one another, despise one another. We assume the worst in other people, and it makes us forget 
that the person on the other side of our barbed words or on the other side of that conversation, they have dignity, they have a story, they have wounds, they're still learning and growing just like we are, but we usually forget to dignify a person when we demonize them. And when you forget that all this is real, that Satan is real, we will demonize other people. We will think they're the enemy when really the real enemy is lurking in the shadows. And so if we make this mistake, we end up fighting spiritual warfare, which is real. We end up fighting with weapons like politics or controlling other people or debating other people. Instead of fighting spiritual warfare with the real effective weapons of spiritual warfare, which is prayer and the word. So I'm not saying that people aren't bad. I, I do believe that. I think that we are fallen. I believe our hearts are wicked, but it's an oversimplification to wholesale think that a person is the problem rather than an organized, hateful kingdom of darkness that operates behind the curtain, pulling strings, strings and setting wickedness in motion through lies. If you begin to acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare, then war and poverty and addiction and corporate greed and racism and murder and our hyper-sexualized pornographic culture, it all begins to make a little more sense. It's not just because we're fallen, it's because there's a real intentional nefarious scheme at play to kill, steal, and destroy. And so, with that said, let's talk biblically about who the devil is. Jesus, here in this passage, calls him the devil, which, like I said before, it comes from the verb to accuse or to slander. So that's a good description of who he is. But originally, his name was Lucifer, and he goes by the terms the devil or Satan or the evil one or the tempter, the destroyer, deceiver, the great serpent, great dragon, or prince of this world. That's what the Bible titles him. Now, if you were to gather, I think, all of these titles into one idea that summarizes who he is, here's what I would say the devil is. He is someone who maliciously interacts with humans in an effort to tempt them towards evil, experience the fallout from that evil, and then fills them with guilt through accusing them before God, others, and their own consciences. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and does it through lies and temptation. Now, quick, uh, uh, I'll try to do this quickly. A biography of the devil, all right? It goes something like this. He was created by God, therefore not equal with God. Not equal with God. He has a beginning, and he certainly has an end. He's not equal with God. Now, this, what I'm about to say next, might be a totally new concept for you. I encourage you, if, if this like, is weird to you, all the sermon manuscripts are online in our sermon archive. Go there and read this later on your own time. Look up the Bible verses on your own because we don't have the time for me to get into every single one of them. But the Old Testament talks about this thing called the divine council. Uh, it was this heavenly host, this div- like it sounds like, this council of angelic beings who presided with God over matters and does his bidding. And we get a peek into the divine council and the spiritual realm throughout the Bible. 
We see it in Psalm 82, verse 1, or in Job chapter 1. If you've ever read the book of Job, you know what I'm talking about, where Satan runs, roams to and fro on the earth. He comes back to the Father in the heavens and has a conversation with God amongst a host of angels there around him. Or in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 21 through 23, uh, you see there some activity in what's called the divine council. So God has a heavenly host who does his bidding, takes counsel with him, and it seems the impression we're given throughout the scriptures is that Lucifer was a part of that divine council from the beginning and even on past the fall, which is kind of interesting, which means that every activity of Satan ultimately is doing God's bidding. But anyway, Ezekiel 28 also tells us that Lucifer was a guardian cherub, uh, maybe even in the Garden of Eden. But then he became proud of his wisdom and beauty to the point where he opposed God. Now, a guardian cherub in the Hebrew, those words, it implies somebody who guards and defends with a high rank. So we can say Lucifer was this angelic being in the divine council whose job was to defend and protect humanity, and he had a high rank. Now, we can't be positive like how this plays out. What, what, like, what is he defending? What is he protecting? And how does that play out? We can't be positive but I'll tell you what I think, okay, based upon sort of the, the summary of the Old Testament. I think we can say at a minimum that Lucifer moved between the physical and the spiritual realm, seeking to do his nefarious deeds, but also under the authority of God. Remember that scene in Job chapter 1 I mentioned, where he goes to and fro, but then goes to God and asks to ruin Job's life. So based upon what we see uh, in the passages that give insight to the spiritual realm, where God interacts with the council surrounding him, it seems as if these spiritual beings, which Lucifer would be one of them, are sent by God for the purpose of interacting with humans and testing them, but not in a negative way, in a positive way, for their strengthening or for their development, for blessing them, for ministering to them. But Satan specifically departs from God's purpose in interacting with humans, and instead of testing, he tempts, which is not positive, it's negative. So I think the biblical data seems to teach that Lucifer's specific job was to test humans for the sake of their godly formation. He was to defend humanity by forming it into what God intended, but he stepped out of line, he used his God-given abilities and role for his own agenda. So instead of testing humans, he shifted to tempting humans. So instead of godliness, there would be wickedness and brokenness. Now you see that obviously play out in the Garden of Eden where he tempts Adam and Eve. You see it also in the book of Job. You see it also in Daniel later on, the book of Daniel, if you remember our study through that, where he has these two henchmen called the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece, who in the spiritual realm are influencing kings for nefarious purposes through temptation and lies. We also see this in the New Testament. Remember when the night before Jesus dies, he tells Peter, the, the accuser, the devil has asked to sift you. Okay, that's language that shows us what the devil does. He tempts towards destruction. And in his malevolent opposition to God, it seems as though the devil strategizes and organizes his efforts. 
in this counter kingdom to the kingdom of God. That title, Prince of this World, that Satan calls the devil the Prince of this World, uh, that's a political word in the original language for the highest ranking Roman official in a city or a region. So if you read the book of Daniel, again, you see that. There's this top-down structure, it seems, in the kingdom of darkness where Satan's at the top and his minions are at his disposal to go and do as he pleases to create carnage and destruction. And as we see back now in this passage, John chapter 8, the devil tempts by distorting truth so that it appeals to our vision of the good life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So that's his biography in one fast arc, but also there's more. Because if you read the Gospels, you would know that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, he says, and to bind the strong man, he says. He did this through overcoming the devil in the wilderness, then teaching truth, casting out demons, and finally through his death and resurrection and exaltation, which in Ephesians chapter 3 tells us, disarmed the power of and authorities, and made them a public spectacle, triumphing over them in the cross. And the result of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation is in Revelation 12, where it says the accuser of the brethren, remember him, that, that, the heavenly host in the spiritual realm, the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, has been cast out and no longer has a place before the Father to accuse us to him. So the devil is very real. So I'm trying to say, he has an organized kingdom set on tempting human into spiritual and eventual societal meltdown. And look, he has nothing to lose since he's already lost. He's already been cast out. He knows the end game. He knows his destiny. He's going down swinging. Now listen, we live in a culture that's obsessed with like horror movies and paranormal movies. It's possible to get carried away with this. We should not get carried away with this and pretend like there's a demon lurking behind every single sin. This last week, I sent my car to Pet Boys. That's where I go to get my oil change, okay, on West Street there. And my, my practice is I like to drop it off and head over to Starbucks and grab myself a cup of coffee and have some un- uninterrupted time in my sermon or reading or whatever it might be. So I'm walking over to Starbucks and it's closed for renovations. And this sermon's fresh in my mind. So I was like, ah, oh, Satan, I rebuke you. But we know biblically that's, that's not what Satan does. That's not how he works. He works subtly through lies. Lies that he places all around us and settles into our imagination that appeal to our vision of the good life that we've bought into. So C.S. Lewis writes this in the screw tape letters at the beginning of the screw tape letters, which is a story about, it's like a hypothetical story about two demons who are um, pen pals. And he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And he says this, they themselves, the demons that is, are equally pleased by both errors. They want you to be either a materialist or a magician, and they have the same delight either way. They want you to ignore it completely or be obsessed over it. And so look, if you properly maintain belief in the devil's activity as a part of your framework for reality, then here's what's going to happen. You're not going to be surprised by evil. 
and you'll not be overcome by evil. So now when you see immorality, you see injustice, instead of becoming cynical or throwing in the towel or fighting with human means like politics or power grabs, what do we do when we see evil happening? We, we pray. We pray. And when you see like disunity in the church or false teaching in the church, the devil's lies making its way even into the church, you don't leave, you don't flee, you don't become enraged. What do you do? You pray. You pray. So have a healthy framework for who the devil is and, how his, and what his ways are. But now lastly, okay, now we have some clarity on who is of the devil and who he is, what his end game is. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is who is of God and who is fathered by him? And what do they look like and what do they do? Because remember, we take on the traits and characteristics of our parents. So who are God's children and what do they do? Jesus presents this very simply, who are God's children? He says in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Who are, who's of God? What's the evidence there that he gives? Do you love Jesus? And what I mean by that is not like some idea of Jesus. We can like agree with Jesus and subscribe to his teachings, but I'm talking, what Jesus is talking about here is do you have a real, affectionate, personal relationship with Jesus? Do you love him? Those of God have that kind of intimacy and vulnerability with Jesus. It's not perfect, but it's there. They know and love Jesus because Jesus, like he has said here, is the very extension of God, the one sent by God, the very representation of God. You can't love God unless you love Jesus. Then in verse 47, he gives another, another qualification of who is of God. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them, he says, is that you are not of God. Those of God who are his children hear his words. Now, when you live by lies, you become spiritually deaf. Like you can't take it. You can't hear his words. You don't want to listen. You can't comprehend them. But when you're of God, you hear his words. You begin to have even more of an ear for his words. It grows. So these two qualifications, these two qualifications, you love Jesus and you hear God's words. You love Jesus, and you hear God's words. That's who is of God. But also, those two qualifications work in tandem with one another. They have a dynamic relationship with one another. So how do you love Jesus? How do you grow in real, affectionate, personal knowledge of Jesus? You hear his words. You yield yourself to his words. Listen, your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. So we must hear the words of God to love Jesus himself. If we want to resist our great enemy of our souls, the father of lies who wants to dominate us, our resistance more than anything else is a resistance of love. We love Jesus more than the lies. We love Jesus more than the vision of the good life that's very appealing to us. We just love Jesus, and that keeps us safe. But you can't love Jesus unless you hear God's words. Jesus says, the gates of hell 
will not prevail against the church. And that's a promise. That's not like wishful thinking. He really means it when he says that. Would you like to move through life prevailing like that, against the gates of hell, resisting temptation, knocking aside lies when they come into your imagination, taking every thought captive? Would you like to live like that? Then you need to hear God's word so that you can then love Jesus more. Now look, if you're a millennial, which is about like 98% of us here, okay, by the end of your life, you will have consumed a decade of content on your screen, on a screen, on a phone. 10 years of your life will have been spent on your phone, pretty much. That's a lot of lies to be taking in. That's a lot of that's a lot of tactics that we're exposing ourselves to of the enemy to appeal to our vision of the good life. So when we talk about resisting the father of lies, it is going to require some intensity. We have to compete with 10 years of our life being given over to lies. So the counter-resistance is going to require great intentionality and effort. And so this is why the church fathers, so many of them, would retreat into the desert and they would just spend days fasting and being alone with God in his word and in prayer, doing literally spiritual combat, with, with doing spiritual warfare with their flesh and with the world, growing in their love for God more than their love for the world. One of these desert fathers was named Evagrius. I think that's how you say his name. I don't know. It's in the Greek, so it's, it's hard. All right. He was a disciple of church fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, two Orthodox church fathers. So he wasn't weird, okay? He was solid in his faith. But here's what he did. He fled to the desert to battle demons, he says. He's fled to the, and essentially what it means is he fled to the, de- the desert to undergo temptation and then to write about it, to do trial and error and write down his thoughts about it as an experiment. And he wrote it, wrote it down in a book called this, Talking Back, subtitle, A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. It's a pretty cool handbook. So he basically writes this meditation application of this verse that's behind me, 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, meaning strongholds of the enemy, lies we believe. That's what that means. We destroy, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is what Evagrius was doing in the desert, just taking every thought captive to the obedience of the truth and thereby growing in his knowledge of Jesus and literally changing his affections, growing in his love for God so he loved God's truth and loved Jesus himself more than lies, more than the flesh. Here's his chapters, just to show you how humanity hasn't changed even though he did this in like the fifth century AD. Tell me if this, if this resonates with our culture today at all. Here's the chapters of his book, his little handbook. Against the thoughts of gluttony, against the thoughts of fornication, concerning the love of money, concerning the thoughts of the demon of sadness, against the demon of anger, against the thoughts of the demon of listlessness, which is depression, against the thoughts of the demon of vainglory, against the cursed thoughts of pride. 
Humanity hasn't changed. Our struggles hasn't changed. The warfare has not changed. The desert fathers, like Evagrius, they were onto something. They really were. They were onto something. When they would retreat and practice solitude and just consume Scripture and pray Scripture and hear God's Word. Now, it seems so radical to us. Like, we would never do that today. It seems weird, right? But they knew that that's the kind of intensity it would take to resist the father of lies and love Jesus more. That kind of intentionality to hear God's word. And there's so much noise in our lives. There's so many voices and so much opinion and so much content that we're consuming. So the question I have for you is, are you hearing God's voice in the midst of it all? Are you, are you dedicating great parts of your day, great parts of, great rhythms of your life to be able to create space in your life, protected, undistracted, uninterrupted space in your life to hear God's word because you will never love Jesus unless you hear God's word. Your heart can't love what your mind doesn't know. And we all know, no matter how much Bible trivia we got in our heads, it's ultimately a battle of affections. We do what we desire. You will obey Jesus and follow him and live the life he wants you to live if you love him, not just if you agree with him. And so they were onto something. Look, this is Jesus' model. Okay, I want to read this for you. This is Jesus' model. Mark chapter 1 shows us this rhythm of Jesus, uh, how he resisted the enemy. So it starts that Jesus is driven into the wilderness. He fasts and prays and is tempted by Satan. He leaves and goes into Galilee. He preaches the gospel. He calls his first disciples. He casts out demons and heals the sick. And then in Mark 1.35, he retreats again. It says this, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, a secret place, a hidden place. And there he prayed. And then the disciples, they search for him, they find him, and then it says in verses 36 and 37, he says, let us go out now to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Mark shows us the rhythm that Jesus oscillates between. He'd be alone with the Father. He'd receive his affirmation from the Father. He'd grow in his knowledge and love of the Father. And then he'd depart from the desert, or depart from the, 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 the hidden place, the secret place, into the world preaching, into the world powerfully, into the world resisting the enemy. Then he'd go back into solitude early in the morning while it was dark, when nobody was awake yet, alone with the Father, while in the stillness. And there he'd receive the truth, and there he'd grow in love, and then he'd move back out into the world and preach and cast out demons. This is Jesus' rhythm. Back and forth, back and forth. And we just for whatever reason, don't practice stillness. Don't practice solitude. We need noise. We need distraction. We need something always before our eyes, ever before our eyes, fascinating us. But Jesus' rhythm, the early church fathers modeled their life after Jesus' rhythm, would go to the secret place with the Father to know and love the Father so he could move out into the world powerfully resisting the enemy. This is, this is for us. And so my call, my call to you is, will you just begin to do this? It's not perfect, but will you just begin? A great majority of Christians just don't, even, don't, read, their, don't, don't read the Bible. 
Don't spend time in prayer. Will you just begin to incorporate that kind of rhythm into your life, spending time hearing God's word so you can grow in your love for Jesus? For some of you, it might be a good idea to go retreat for a weekend, to go retreat for a night. If you have kids, work it out. One spouse stays home with the kids, the other spouse gets to go, and then next weekend, flip it around. But go, retreat, have stillness with the Father. Grab, if you don't know what to do, get, get a study. Get a reading plan. Just begin. There's no standard. There's no, there's no perfect, perfect standard here. It's just begin. Now, look, I, I know this sounds intense. I know that. I think it does require a great intensity for us to be a community of people who are moving into the world powerfully resisting the enemy. It's going to require great intensity because we are at war. We are. So I want to end our time to encourage you to adopt these rhythms into your life. I want to inspire you with a story. Hitler's rise to power and brainwashing of an entire nation so that no one would be alarmed at the extermination of six million Jews, it was not achieved through merely political rhetoric. For Hitler, it was a very spiritual and religious battle. One historian says this, Hitler did not merely want to rule Germany politically. Rather, he wanted to control the hearts and souls of its citizens. At a very fundamental level then, this was as much a religious battle as it was a political struggle. So Hitler's goal was to reach even into the church, and he did. The Nazis gained control of the evangelical church in Germany and tried to ban all non-Aryan clergy. They were, tried to remove the Old Testament from the Bible. So here's what happened in 1934. A group of unwavering Christian leaders established what was called the Confessing Church, they penned a confession which announced their fidelity to Christ and, and their uh, renouncement of loyalty to the right. And one of the leaders was a pastor theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And soon after that, that declaration was penned, in an effort to train up stronger pastors who wouldn't fold, Bonhoeffer was tasked to create an underground seminary that would train these confessional pastors through the practice of meditation on, on God's Word and living in community with one another around God's Word. So Bonhoeffer moved a bunch of himself and a bunch of young pastors to this rural part of Germany in this old manor and began living communally around God's Word, practicing spiritual disciplines together and learning the theology morning to night. And it was intense. Morning to night, it was intense. And word got out. To, the, to that underground movement, the Confessing Church, word got out, and some people got concerned because it sounded so rigorous and so intense. And so one of his friends, a young historian named Wilhelm Niesel, came to visit the seminary because he was afraid that the training was too intense and he, what he called too spiritual. So here's what Bonhoeffer did. I love this. Listen here. He took Niesel on a rowing trip. And when the two rowers reached the far shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a small hill to a clearing from which they would see in the distance a vast field and the runway of a nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like platoons of ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans that were in training whose disciplines were formed 
for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained to his friend, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. He says this, quote, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. And so he continued on in his training with these pastors to cause a new generation of, of leaders to, to rise who would have their highest allegiance be to Jesus because they knew and loved him. Look, your parentage matters. Who your father is matters. We have two options. We can either be under the kind, loving, life-giving care of our Father in heaven and become more like him. Take on his traits and take on his characteristics and live in power and live in victory moving forward into the world. Or we can sympathize with the lies. We can drop our guard and we can just yield ourselves to the lies around us and take on traits, even unconsciously, of the father of lies. So here's what we must do. It's time to resist, to know God so we can love God. It's time to get alone with God. So here's what I'd like you to do this week. Okay, you don't need to do it now, but here's what I want you to do this week. Make a plan and tell someone about it. Just for the sake of accountability, or just for the sake of mutual accountability, what's your plan to get alone with the Father, to grow in your knowledge of Jesus so you can love Jesus more? What's your plan? Make a plan and tell someone about it. Look, I look back at my life and every single decision that was excruciating and hard, in the moment, it was intense. In the moment, it was exhausting, but it always paid dividends, and I've never regretted a hard decision. But I look back at my life when I've compromised, when I took the easy way out, and every single time I've regretted it. And so, let's be community people who are alone with the Father, growing in our love and knowledge of the Father so we can resist the Father of lies as we become more like our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, you are the truth, and you are the life, and you are the light. We want to walk in the light and live by the truth and know and love you. And so, Lord, would you please help us to follow through on what your Spirit is convicting us to do today, whatever it might be, to get in the Word more, to practice solitude more, to get away on a retreat, to pray, whatever it might be, God. I ask and pray that you would enable us by your gracious power to move forward and follow through in diligence on what you're asking us to do. Lord, we believe there's more. There's more power, more victory, more prevalence against the gates of hell. And God, we don't want to lay down and just sympathize with the enemy of our souls. Lord, we want to join your ranks and become more like you, our Father. In your name we pray. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.